This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 37. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, commits her or causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no. Anything more than this, comes from the evil one. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. You all can have a seat. Good morning, good morning. Today's reading, a kind of um, stark reminder that, thanks be to God, I don't get to choose the sermon text that I preach from on Sunday. Um, we here at Christ the King and in churches all over the world have chosen to submit ourselves to a very old Bible reading and preaching plan known as the Sunday Lectionary. So the texts come to us rather than, um, you know, me waking up and choosing what I'm going to preach about or from. Uh, These words from Jesus, there's a lot there, a lot that uh, needs to be contended with, wrestled through, and talked about. Uh, I wish we had a lot more time than we do. Um, But this teaching is for us here at Christ the King, uh, following, coming on the heels of what's been now for us a kind of weeks-long teaching, looking at Jesus' so-called Sermon on the Mount, um, this famous teaching and sermon that he he preaches at the beginning of his ministry. It is also for us, of course, still the season of Epiphany. We have just two weeks left until the beginning of Lent. Um, Before, though, we transition and begin to pivot and think about the next upcoming season, I want to make sure that we're able to bridge where we've been, what we've been talking about, connect it to like where we're going in the season of Lent so that we don't just like pivot onto the next thing and then forget all of this that we've been doing for these last number of weeks. They're connected, I think. 
during the season of Epiphany, and this will be a review for those of you who've been here every week, but we've been asking ourselves, reflecting on, as we've been called by the church to do, what it means that when Jesus came, he made known or he revealed to us a particular kind of life that we've been calling the with God life. That's what Jesus came to make known. It's what he came to reveal. And he did that um, a number of different ways. But that was his purpose and coming was to make known this, this way of life to us. We've been saying that what that means, this with God life, is in short, and you could say it a million different ways, but for our purposes, we said that this with God life is the ability to live within this world as a real person with all my very real stuff to do, and yet somehow also be enfolded into the kingdom of heaven. My space, like being absorbed into God's space. That that's what the with God life means, that I can live my life, the real one, with God in his presence. And Jesus came to show us how to do that. And we've named three movements that a person makes in order to enter into this thing that Jesus came to give, this life. Coming to Jesus, being with Jesus, and then becoming like him. And we've spent these last number of weeks talking about like, what that means. These are very real-life, concrete shifts, movements that I make as a person if I want to take Jesus seriously, if I want to be a part of what it is that he came to do. We spent the last couple of weeks talking about what it means to intentionally choose to become like him, accepting that the work that is done is done through me, by the Spirit of God. So that's true. And also, I have to choose to intentionally be a disciple or an apprentice, a follower of Jesus. Insert your word that works best for you. So yes, this with God life is something that happens through me. I can't just do it on my own. But also, of course, it requires my participation. This teaching from Jesus is another illustration of why that matters so much. Because I suspect that many of you, if you're really paying attention, would have to wrestle with or struggle with the idea that you can just keep yourself from being angry. Just stop. Just don't do it anymore. Just try harder not to be anger, angry. Or for that matter, lust. Stop it. What if you went to your therapist like, I, here's my struggle. And she just looked at you and said, oh, stop. Well, you should stop doing that, you know? And if only, if you're like, oh, man, that's it. I just turn it off. Incredible. I didn't know that that was possible. And it says, you know, it's like when Jesus says it, you know, if you find yourself thinking similarly, oh, just don't be angry, like, ever at all. I shouldn't lust ever. I mean, it's actually not possible and I love that we act as if like never being, you know, angry. Of course, we're always going to be angry. But the lust thing, we could really turn that off, you know, just whenever we get ready. It's built into, baked into your humanity. So I wonder if one of the things that Jesus is saying to us is, did you know that rather than trying to pretend to be a fully integrated person, or a whole person, a person of substance, rather than trying to imitate people who seem to be or appear to be that way, rather than hiding your humanity, what if you could be enfolded into a way of being human that was whole, 
honest, integrated, that you could actually become a person of substance and live your life that way so that you didn't have to hide your humanity anymore. It would be quite an irony if God decided to put on flesh and humanity so that he could come here and teach us to hide ours. What a weird thing that would be. I think too many of us live as if what it means to be Christian is somehow to get over the fact that I'm a person who feels things good and bad. It's baked into the nature and the fabric of who we are, and I don't say that as a license or an excuse. It's a fact, and Jesus knew it was a fact. So what is he doing? How do we do it? Become like him. Well, we said and have said, in short, we have to practice. So we've talked about the need for a rule of life. It's language that the monastics used anyway. People like St. Augustine, St. Benedict, developed this language as a way of talking about how we practice the things that Jesus called us to do. Not just the do-gooding stuff, the things that we're supposed to do as an overflow of who we are, mercy, compassion, justice, but the practices that would make us into people who are compassionate, who think and act justly. Do you see the difference? I spent most of my life thinking that my energy should be directed on trying to act like a compassionate person, that my energy should be directed at trying to make myself pray and read my Bible so that, do you know what I mean? And I wonder if what has happened for a lot of us is that we've skipped over a whole set of practices that help us become people of mercy, that help us become people of prayer, that help us become people of compassion and justice. That's the gift of the ancient church. And I'm saying that to you as a cradle Baptist, loving my tradition very much, but having missed over this, like for most of my life, a kind of treasure that comes from the gift of the ancient church to say there are ways for you to actually practice living this life. Things that you can do that will keep you tethered to God. The solution for so many of us, y'all, is not trying harder. It is being tethered. And that's what we've been talking about these last few weeks. What I need is a way. I need a plan. I need something to do that keeps my life connected to the with God life. What does that look like for us? Some of us are so tired, it's hard to even imagine what that would possibly be or look like. Don't want a new thing, another way. <laughs> too tired to even imagine it. And if that's how you feel, heard, understood. But it's not doing us any favors. The question is why are we so tired? Why are we so exhausted? Why are we too tired and too exhausted to do the things that we know that our souls need? And until you get pretty irritated by that fact, until that starts to feel like oppression to you, you won't do anything about it. Until Egypt became an unbearable place and the bricks became impossible to make, 
we would have stayed happily. We even longed to go back, if you'll remember. It has to start to feel like something oppressive is happening. Before we talk a little bit more about rule of life, though, I want to pay attention to this teaching from Jesus in chapter 5. Because what it can sound like, if you're just listening to all the words sort of strung together, is that what Jesus is doing is upping the ante. (laughs) Um, That actually, what it means to follow Jesus and be his disciple or his apprentice is to be even more hardcore than the law. Oh, you thought Moses was bad. (laughs) I'm here now. You can't, Moses said not to kill people. Well, I'm going to tell you, you can't even be mad at them. Moses told you not to commit adultery. Well, I'm going to tell you, you can't even look at her. Because God knows women don't struggle with lust. So we're off the hook. That one's just for you men. No offense, Lord. Jesus says, you've heard it said to you, do not murder. But I tell you, whoever's angry at his brother or sister is liable to judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever secretly lusts after another person has committed adultery in your heart already. If your eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? If your hand causes you to sin, what do you do with it? Chop it off. We've been making this too hard, y'all. That's what I've decided. So what we're going to do is we're going to get real serious about this following Jesus business. Um, new priest in town. And we're just going to line up. And for those of you who the past few days of your eyes have tripped you up, I'm going to pop them right out of your head. And if your hands have been any trouble at all, uh, they're coming off. Until we all look like a bloody stump of humanity like victims of war, which is precisely what you would look like and precisely what so many of us feel like. Because I suspect very few of you have gone about trying to pluck out your eyes or cut off your hands, but instead you feel ashamed of them you know what happens to people who don't have eyes and don't have hands and don't have feet? They can't see, they can't stand up, they can't speak. They become motionless, they go back to the ground, right? When God decided to create humanity, he called us out of and shaped us out of what? The ground. He gave you those hands, and he gave you those eyes, and he gave you those feet, and then he put the breath in your lungs, and he told you to stand up, and he stood back, and he said, that is very, very good. Your humanity is not a liability to the Lord who made you. I don't care how broken it is. He loves you, and he loves all of your brokenness. And he would very much like to deliver you from an enemy who manipulates it and takes advantage of it and makes you feel like a slave. So we're going to talk about the devil now. Prepare yourself. 
Some of us have forgotten that we have an adversary. So your life with God is you and your sin and God. And you have forgotten a part of the equation. And that part of the equation very much likes it that way. To have been forgotten altogether. Sin, with a capital S, is the word we use to refer to the fallen condition of the world, of creation. Sin, capital S. Sin, with a lowercase s, is the language we use to describe the things we do as a result of that brokenness that I do. But sin, with a capital S, pervades everything. Disease, lust, It all emanates from the same source according to the Bible. Brokenness and fallenness. And my sin, when I commit it, is a participation in that fallenness. There are things we must do differently. There are ways in which some of you should be trying harder than you are. That's probably true. But some of us feel like we've been hacked to bits And we have forgotten that we have someone who very much exists to hack us to bits. And in my own life, remembering that I have an adversary is a very important part of my freedom. So on the off chance that it would matter to you and you've forgotten it, that you are not the enemy, neither is your humanity, but you do have one. And you don't have to be just a wild charismatic to believe that. That's just orthodoxy. Eve ate the fruit. She did it. When the Lord looked at her and said, what happened? She had to say, I ate it. She also said, but he made me do it. And she wasn't wrong. She was lied to first. What's Paul say? Sin seizes the opportunity. You know, it lives in me. But I have an enemy who is crafty. He knows our vulnerabilities and our weaknesses, and he's always looking to exploit them and manipulate them. Jesus knew that murder is what happens when an enemy manipulates our anger, which we will feel. Same with lust. Adultery is what happens when we have an enemy who manipulates our weaknesses. A desire in us that is natural. I don't mean that it's good. I'm not saying lust is good. I just mean you're going to feel it. And trying to get to a place where you're human and you don't feel it is going to be a futile endeavor for you. I don't mean that you'll always be bound to lust. I just mean it's always going to be bound up in your humanity. It can be a lesser part of who you are. And if you're overruled by it, overcome by it, then Jesus intends to make it a lesser part of who you are. Our appetites are a part of us. They're a good part of us even. The things I crave and desire, good, but they make terrible masters. Appetites are really wonderful servants, terrible masters. And that's true of most good things in the world. Yeah? So the question is, are the things that God has given to us, our humanity, as a gift, is it ruling over us in a way that is oppressive? And the reason that I think that this matters, two reasons, the devil made me do it is not, it's not a justifiable excuse ever. It won't hold up in any court. It didn't work for me when I was 
12. It's the devil, I guess. It's going to work for me at 38. It won't hold up in any court. Not mine, not the law's, not the Lord's. And yet, we have to see all this rule of life stuff as a tool for our liberation or it will be something that yet again that same enemy uses against us. Do you know what I mean? That's just what he does. If you don't actively see it as a way to get more free, then the trellis that is meant to help you climb rung by rung up out of the pit will become just another way for him to abuse you and keep you in your place. So it matters that we frame it that way. You are being saved by this gospel. Jesus is a deliverer. Amen? He's not just a really great teacher. He is a really great teacher. But he is primarily, he introduced himself. He wants to be your savior and deliverer. Your redeemer. And he's going to do that through his teaching, through his spirit, through life with him. But we cannot afford to forget that we need to be saved. And that this is, in the words of Deuteronomy that we read this morning, we have been put before us, we have had put before us life and death. Choose which way you're going to walk. Through the season of Lent, one of the ways we're going to step into this rule of life business is by keeping Sabbath together or practicing keeping Sabbath together. We're going to do that in our community groups. Not all of you will probably be in one, and that's okay. You still get to be part of this church and do Lent. But for those of us who are in community groups, through the Lenten season, we're going to be practicing these, the Sabbath-keeping business. Sabbath, which those of you who are in these groups will read about, you'll learn, is, hear me out, Sabbath is the celebration of people who have been made free. Sabbath is the celebration of people who have been made free. And we practice it because we serve a freedom-loving God. Case in point, in the story of creation, the world is, in the words of Genesis, formless and void, overrun by chaos and death. Nothing can live. It is a wad of mess, like many of us feel. If that language describes your life, that's on purpose. It's because the Bible's brilliant. That's the world. And the Spirit of God hovers over this mess and in a beautiful act of liberation, God comes over the death and he says what? Let there be light. Just like in Moses with outstretched hands will say in Egypt centuries and millennia later, what? Let my people go. An act of declaration, an act of liberation. God says let there be light and there was light. On and on and on until we get to the end of creation and humanity exists, we stand up, the Lord applauds, and then you know what he says? That was good. Time to rest. We're free. Chaos is in its place. Death has been pushed back. 
And now it's time to celebrate and rest. Like free people. In the Exodus event, God delivers the people out of Egypt. He gets them to the other side. And what do they do? They worship and they rest. I bet it took them a long time to pick up another brick. So for us, similarly, as we go through Lent, we have to remember that all of this examining of our appetites, all of this confessing of our sin, in this case, all of this Sabbath keeping, is in some way to participate in our freedom. It's a way, it's an act of resistance. I am a free person for whom Jesus has made free. I will rest. I will stop. I will Some of you don't need to try harder. You need to be tethered to Jesus so you can rest and stop. And before we test out all the other disciplines, all the other practices that there are that Christians have been doing for centuries, if we don't get this one right, if we don't know that all of it is because and for the sake of our freedom, we'll start off on the wrong foot. Yeah? So that's why. That's why Sabbath keeping. That's why Lent. If you want to read three books about rule of life right now and you're very excited about this, I'm not going to slow you down. Go for it. But here's my word of caution. If you can't answer the question, what does it look like for you to stop and rest and do that with God? Then I wouldn't move any farther until you have an answer to that question. Let him help you answer that one first, because all of the rest of it will flow out of that place. This is Deuteronomy. We'll close here. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying him, holding fast to him, for that means life for you. Jesus said, I came so that they may have what? Life. You are not a bloody stump. I swear to you, gouge out both my eyes, cut off all my arms and legs, I will still find a way to sin miserable offender that I am. My healing has to come from somewhere else. My redemption has to come from somewhere else. Jesus is being purposefully and intentionally provocative and hyperbolic. He knows we can't do it that way. We have to have another way, and it's not trying harder. Abide with me, Jesus said. Stay with me. And I'll teach you how to live. Amen. Help us, Holy Spirit. God, we commit to you the choices that we have to make towards life and towards death. We commit to you, God, our humanity, knowing that you love it and celebrate it. We ask you, Lord, for your mercy and your help now. Will you lead us, Lord? Give us hope and vision, Jesus, for what it will mean to follow you. And Lord, where we lack it, where we lack hope and vision, I pray, God, that you would just give us will. Help us, Jesus, to trust you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.